turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Chris Williams is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Todd Chipman. He is the author of Until Every Child is Home, Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. He also includes in that uh, those who are in foster care. He'll be joining us later this hour, so I hope you'll be with us as well. Well, the Washington Post has now associated white nationalists with pro-life, well, anti-abortion, the movement, which is a rather bizarre, deceitful attempt to tie the pro-life movement with racism. Well, the Washington Post did fix one of the lies from the story from Rod Dreher. J.D. Vance, about whom the story was written, is actually married to a person of color and the father of a mixed-race child. The Post said uh, should be ashamed of itself. It wouldn't be, though. Um, Worth noting that the essay smearing J.D. Vance as a white nationalist fellow traveler cites a speech in which he urged Republicans to be more supportive of of African-American single mothers. That's real white nationalism. Um, That link was uh, pulled from the story. The Washington Post J.D. Vance thing confirms that we can all be called racist in the most major media outlets for basically any opinion. By the way, I happen to be African-American and staunchly pro-life. Puerto Rico is bracing for a possible direct hit from Tropical Storm Dorian on Wednesday, as forecasters say. It's shifted in its path and could strengthen into a hurricane. It has now done so. The storm is expected to pass over or near western and central uh, Puerto Rico now, suggesting that it's probably more near than uh, directly toward. With landslides, widespread flooding, power outages possible, the president declared an emergency last night and ordered federal assistance for local authorities. New photos taken of a North North Korea shipyard suggests the country could be building a submarine that could potentially be capable of launching a nuclear missile, a report said uh, earlier today. The photo shows vessels and cranes that could be used to haul a missile out of the sea for launch, according to experts at the Washington-based think tank. NBC News reported the satellite photos seem to confirm North Korea's state media reports from July about a newly built submarine. There's no conclusive evidence at the moment that this is a near-term certainty, one expert said, of a possible missile test. Once a submarine is built, it would take at least a year before it's ready, according to that same expert. State attorneys uh, general and lawyers representing local governments said uh, Tuesday that they're in active settlement talks with Purdue Pharma, the maker of the prescription painkiller OxyContin, that is facing billions of dollars in potential liability for its role in the nation's opioid crisis. Purdue has been cast by attorneys and addiction experts as a main villain in the crisis for producing a, um, a blockbuster drug while understating its addiction risk. Purdue Pharma and its owners are reportedly looking to settle more than 2,000 opioid cases in a deal between 10 to $12 billion. The firing of NYPD officer Daniel uh, Pantolio, 
who was involved in the fatal arrest of Eric Garner in 2014, appears to have already had an effect on the Big Apple, with the number of arrests dropping sharply compared to 2018 and police officers warning of plummeting morale among the New York's finest. Just between August the 17th, when Penatelio was fired, and August the 25th, arrests dropped by 27 percent compared to the same period in 2018, the New York Post reported. NYPD police officers made 3,508 arrests compared to 4,800. 827 a year earlier, again, according to the New York Post. And what are the consequences of a culture increasingly devoid of principles and spiritual meaning? The Wall Street Journal reveals the ominous corollaries. The values that Americans say define the national character are changing as younger generations rate patriotism, religion and having children as less important to them than did young people two decades ago. A Wall Street Journal NBC News survey found the rate reductions range from nine to 16 percentage point. The Daily Wire's Ben Shapiro deduces if you get rid of patriotism, get rid of religion and then you get rid of even a care for the future. The question becomes, what exactly are the ties that are supposed to bind us together other than watching the Super Bowl? on TV once a year. And the company that administers the SAT college admissions test is replacing the so-called adversity score with a tool that will no longer reduce an applicant's background to a single number, an idea that the college board's chief executive now says was a mistake, according to Time magazine, which goes on to explain that the revised tool will provide a series of data points from government sources and the college board that are seen as affecting education. Dropping the adversity score is good, but replacing it with yet another affirmative action tool is still beyond the scope of what college board's role should be. And a federal appeals court has ruled that Idaho must pay for a transgender inmate's surgery. Uh, 31-year-old R.D. Edmo is a convicted sex offender who is scheduled to be released from jail in 2021. The sex offender was diagnosed with gender dysmorphia in 2012, identifies as a woman, and is currently housed in a men's prison. According to Edmo's attorney, they treat a prisoner with diabetes or other chronic conditions, so we have a medically recognized condition that's very treatable, and we've been trying to get her the treatment that she very much needs. In other words, you will be made to care. And a federal judge on Tuesday temporarily blocked a Missouri law banning abortions after eight weeks, one of the most restrictive proposals nationwide. The various sections specifying prohibitions on abortion at various weeks prior to viability cannot be allowed to go into effect on the 28th of August. As scheduled, U.S. District Judge Howard Satches, a Carter appointee, wrote in an 11-page opinion. Satches uh, wrote in his uh, ruling that the law conflicts with Supreme Court precedent, which said that states could not interfere with a woman's right to abortion until a fetus is viable after 24 weeks of pregnancy. According to CNSNews.com's Terrence Jeffrey, Entities in Japan have surpassed entities in mainland China as the top foreign holder of U.S. Treasury securities, according to the latest estimate published this month by the Treasury. As of um, uh, June, Japan uh, owns the um, uh, slightly higher uh, percentage than China. That marked the first time since May of 2017 that entities in Japan have owned more U.S. Treasury securities than entities in China. He notes, better an ally than an enemy, although debt is never a good thing for future and present generations. 
20 miles of new border barriers were authorized this week by Defense Secretary Mark Esper, according to The Hill. The Army Corps of Engineers determined that lower-than-expected contract costs could allow for another 20 miles of barrier. Meanwhile, the Washington Free Beacon reports thousands of would-be illegal immigrants are being returned to await asylum hearings in Mexico. As part of the program, the president, the administration, is credited with curbing the recent wave of family uh, migration at the southwestern border. Republican and Democratic U.S. senators said Russia refused to grant them visas for a visit to Moscow next week amid disagreement with Washington and among U.S. allies over whether the country should be readmitted into the group of seven. Reuters reveals the two senators are Chris Murphy and Ron Johnson, both of whom sit on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Murphy and Johnson also support levying sanctions on Russia. President Trump on Tuesday officially tapped Eugene Scalia, son of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, to be his administration's next Secretary of Labor. The president forecast his nomination of Scalia last month, just days after Secretary of Labor Alexander Acosta resigned amid criticism of his kid-gloved handling of Florida prostitution charges against the late billionaire Jeffrey Epstein. And um, CNSNews.com also reports that the U.S. Navy's task force climate change was surreptitiously shuttered in March. The decade-old TFCC was a pet project of Barack Obama tasked with gauging how climate change affects or could affect naval and national security operations. Retired Navy Rear Admiral John White, a former TFCC director, groused, it all goes back to the White House. Yes, it does, because the Trump administration wants to focus on actual military readiness. And on this day in history, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gives his famous I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Looking a little further back, on this day in 1922, the first commercial broadcast over radio airs on station WEAF in New York City. And on this day in 1955, Emmett Till, a black 14-year-old boy from Chicago, is abducted from his uncle's home and later killed for allegedly whistling at a white woman. On this day in 1981, the Centers for Disease Control announced a medical task force. It's been formed to look into the incidence of Kaposi sarcoma and um, pneumocystis in homosexual men. AIDS is later found to be the cause. And finally, on this day in 2008, Illinois Senator Barack Obama accepts the Democratic nomination for president. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we're going to talk with Todd Chipman in our next segment. He's the author of Until Every Child is Home, While the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. He also writes about those in foster care as well. He himself was adopted. We'll give him an opportunity to tell his story and why it's an important opportunity for the church, which is essentially believers, you and I, all together. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, who presented herself in the presidential race as a champion of women and families, said today that she was withdrawing from the Democratic primary after failing to qualify for a third debate next month, a development she described as fatal to her candidacy. Well, it appears, this being the last day for candidates to qualify, that it's been whittled down to 10 who will participate in the debate next month. And the Conservative Heritage Foundation reacted with bewilderment on Wednesday after... um, 
Vice President uh, Joe Biden claimed that the think tank had condemned the 2017 Trump GOP tax cut, saying the former vice president's claim had no basis in reality. Then, after Biden walked back his comment and instead said the Heritage Foundation has generally sounded the alarm about the national debt, the think tank again called out Biden for falsely implying that it advocated repealing the tax cuts to solve the debt crisis. Well, the back and forth episode, a sort of Biden claim whack-a-mole, came as uh, verbal gaffes have continued to rock the candidate's campaign prompting a a top aide to call the blunders a part of his charm. I hope you'll be that generous to me that, uh, you know, my blunders are just a part of my charm. Uh, Speaking at a town hall in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, on Wednesday, Biden remarked, even the Heritage Foundation has pointed out that his, referring to the president's tax cuts, did not work. Adam Michelle, who's been a guest on this program, by the way, he's a senior policy analyst at Heritage and an informal advisor to the White House on the tax law, said that Biden's comments were perplexing. I have no idea what he's referring to. It's clear that the tax cuts have worked and have benefited Americans across the country and will continue to benefit them over time. Michelle added that Biden's remarks were clearly incorrect and that our work has continually shown the tax cuts are working. As recently as June, Michelle was defending the tax cuts, which slashed the corporate and marginal tax rates against Democratic presidential candidates' calls for repeal. Um, But, you know, that's just part of the charm. After all, facts are more important than truth, I think he said on another occasion. The conservative Virginia-based National Legal and Policy Center Um, has filed a complaint against Representative Ilhan Omar, the Democrat from Minnesota, with the Federal Election Commission on Wednesday, alleging that the lawmaker used campaign funds to illegally reimburse her purported paramour for personal travel expenses. The complaint also charges that Omar failed to itemize travel reimbursements as required by the Federal Election Campaign Act of 71, and that the travel expenses increase um, during the same month that Omar's alleged affair with the married Washington, D.C. political consultant heated up, the complaint was filed one day after his wife submitted a, uh, submitted divorce papers in Washington, claiming her husband suddenly informed her earlier this year that he was, in fact, having a relationship with the uh, representative. Omar has denied that she had an affair with, uh, with her uh, advisor when asked on Tuesday if she was separated from her own husband and if she was dating anyone. She replied, no, I am not. Uh, As I said yesterday, I have no interest in really allowing the conversation about my personal life to continue, and so I have no desire to discuss it. And that was the end of that, at least in terms of uh, responding. But the FEC is uh, looking into that complaint. Well, the fourth named storm of the hurricane season, Dorian, strengthened on Wednesday into a hurricane near the U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico and Bahamas. And by the weekend, it may threaten uh, um, Florida's coast as a Category 3 storm. The National Hurricane Center said Wednesday in its 2 p.m. Eastern Time update that Dorian was located right above St. Thomas with maximum winds of 75 miles an hour, a 25 mile per hour increase from Tuesday as it moved northwest at 13 miles per hour. A hurricane warning has been issued for U.S. Virgin Islands in addition to the British Virgin Islands, um, which means that hurricane conditions are expected within the next 12 hours. Hurricane Watch is in effect for Puerto Rico, where a tropical storm warned, uh, warning rather is also in effect for the same uh, areas. The center of Dorian is forecast to track over or near the U.S. and the British Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico later today before the storm then moves east of uh, Turks and Caicos and the southwestern Bahamas on Thursday and near or to the east of the central and northwestern Bahamas on Friday and Saturday. This is a, is uh, trending in the wrong direction, according to one meteorologist, Adam Coles. 
Uh, it's strengthening, maybe spending more time over warm water, which will allow it to continue to pick up those wind speeds, pick up all that extra moisture. It's looking like a tough system. After Saturday, the... Um, uh, they said all the intensity models show Dorian then getting stronger while threatening the Bahamas and the southeastern part of the United States. Richard Lowry points out that uh, if recirculating tweets of employees of liberal news outlets is undemocratic, why isn't similar activity by left-wing groups also dangerously authoritarian? Well, the New York Times, an organization devoted to gathering and publishing information, doesn't want people to gather or publish information inconvenient to it. A group of Trump-supporting operatives have been uh, finding and archiving old social media postings of Times employees and other journalists for use on ongoing brawl between the president and the press. There's no indication that this is dumpster diving rather than an effort to scour readily available sources for stupid, embarrassing, or offensive things that journalists have said publicly under their own power. The Times broke the news of the campaign in an alarmed-sounding uh, report. It related that the material publicized so far, while in some cases stripped of context or presented in misleading ways, has proven authentic and much of it has been professionally harmful to its targets, which is an apt description of what the New York Times does on a daily basis to those they are ideologically opposed to. It's not clear what makes uh, this different from what happens in our public life every single day. Headhunting based on past offenses, real and or imagined, is the norm. Indeed, one of the left's favorite forms of ideological combat, particularly the New York Times and elsewhere. Nonetheless, the press and its progressive allies act as though the First Amendment is being endangered if journalists apologize for past things they've written or, depending on the decision of their own organizations, get cashiered for them. Uh, The goal of this campaign is clearly to intimidate journalists from doing their job. That's what uh, the Times publisher thundered, A.G. Sulzberger, which includes serving as a check on power and exposing wrongdoing when it occurs. The Times will not be intimidated or silenced, he went on to say. A spokesman for CNN went further, saying that when government officials and those working on their behalf, and these are civilians, they're not in the government, threaten and retaliate against reporters as a means of suppression, it is a clear abandonment of democracy for something very dangerous. MSNBC host Joy Reid tweeted, welcome to the age of digital uh, brown shirtism, which, of course, they introduced. This is the usual hysteria yoked to the usual foggy thinking. The First Amendment is an important protection of free press, uh, press freedom, rather. Yet nothing in it protects members of the press from criticism, let alone criticism over things that they have themselves written or said. Such criticisms are exercises of free speech in response to other exercises of free speech, i.e. public debate. If the Times and others don't like the weaponization of foolhardy and untoward social media postings, they can start pushing back against it across the board. The organization Media Matters for America exists to publicize allegedly controversial statements by conservative media figures toward the end of getting them fired or ushered off the air. If recirculating the past tweets of employees of liberal news organizations is undemocratic, why isn't the work of uh, Media Matters also dangerously authoritarian? Well, the Times may say they... uh, Uh, that it won't be intimidated by pressure over past postings, but it has readily surrendered uh, to such pressure from the left. The paper pulled the plug on its hiring of tech writer Quinn Norton last year when it emerged that she had tweeted offensive terms about gays and blacks, albeit sardonically. Uh, The hounding of conservatives isn't considered beyond the pale. It's considered sport. Much of the left would be rendered practically mute uh, if it weren't braying for people to be fired. When the Atlantic had the temerity to hire um, Kevin Williamson, a fearless and brilliant libertarian controversialist, um, seeming uh, every 
Uh, seemingly every liberal outlet in the country joined in the pylon. Williamson's hiring was swiftly revoked, with none of his critics detecting a threat of democracy in the episode. Williamson has written a keen book about his experience, The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics. It's a bad idea for either side to rummage through old social media postings and writings looking for firing offenses. It's an inherently punitive project and often an unfair one. No one in the sum of their uh, tweets um, is the uh, no one is the sum of their tweets, rather. But the rules of this game were established by the left long ago. It should either change them or stop whining. My guess is the whining will continue. That is essentially the case. Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson, the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee and longtime Georgia lawmaker, announced today that he will resign at the end of the year. In a statement, the 74-year-old uh, Isaacson cited his battle with Parkinson's disease. I'm leaving the job I love because my health challenges are taking a toll on me, my family, and my staff. Isaacson last month was hospitalized following a fall at his Washington apartment. That left him uh, with fractured ribs. He'll be leaving at the end of the year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back with Todd Tipman. Until Every Child is Home, the title of the book, Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as an adopted child and a father of adopted children, my next guest, Todd Chipman, is a passionate advocate for foster care and adoption ministry. His book, Until Every Child is Home, is not just another book calling attention to the needs of orphans and how the church should get more involved, and of course the church should get more involved, but the needs of orphans is just half of the story. Dr. Chipman, he invites readers to see that foster care, adoption, and support ministries directly enhance the ministry of the local church. As the church addresses the needs of orphans. Orphan Care Ministry provides the church an opportunity to strategically practice its faith in the public square. He walks through biblical texts and profiles, Christian leaders like Russell Moore, David Platt, Tony uh, Merida, Rosaria Butterfield, John Mark Yates, and many others to offer a vision of how orphans, orphan care rather, vis, um, visualizes local church ministry. He identifies six spheres of ministry that benefit from a church orphan care work, and we're going to talk about them all. Well, my guest, Dr. Uh, Todd Chipman, is Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also a teaching pastor at the Masters Community Church in Kansas City, Kansas, uh, and has been since 2000. He's the author of Scripture Storyline, a biblical theology commentary. He and his wife... Uh, have five biological children and a sibling set of sisters they have adopted and did so on National Adoption Day. Once again, he joins us today to talk about his uh, latest book, Until Every Child is Home, Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Georgine. Can you um, begin by telling us your own adoption story? Yes, I I, uh, sort of have this... uh, embedded in my life, this book. I, I guess it was uh, coming about even as I was coming about in some ways. Uh, I was uh, the product of uh, a couple of teenagers who met at a party. Uh, there's uh, every, Everything I know about my biological history is on a two-page letter from Nebraska Children's Home where I was adopted. Uh, my birth mother, when uh, she found out that she was pregnant, was kicked out of her home, uh, an unfortunate situation that she grew up in, and she went to board uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, with uh, a physician. Uh, I guess he was pro-life early on in the movement, and she boarded with him for 
doing lighthouse work, helping with their children. And once I was born, that's that's all I know. Uh, I was born 500 days before Roe v. Wade. And uh, I heard your news report mm-hmm. just uh, in the last half hour, and you mentioned the uh, court decision in Missouri, where I live, and the uh, the judge deciding that this law cannot go into effect yet. And that's unfortunate. We continue to pray that the courts will be more favorable yes. uh, and see the the horror of abortion for what it is. But if if I was born 500 years later, very likely that we would not be having this conversation. But in the Lord's providence. He uh, provided me a family, a real family, and my mother and father adopted me. Uh, they got me the day before Halloween, 1971, so they knew what they were getting into. I like to, to remind them, you know, if there's ever trouble here, you knew what you were getting into, Mom and Dad. <laughs> the date was there. And uh, I grew up in a, in a loving home, supportive home. I note in the book that one of my earliest memories, Georgina, is, is my parents sitting down with my sister and I and sharing with us about adoption, that they were not able to have children in a natural way, and and that we were chosen. They chose us. They wanted us. And some children really struggle with adoption and the fact that if they are adopted, it's a difficult transition for them. And well, I hope our listeners are sensitive to those cases, and, and I know they will be. But for me, it was not a problem. Uh, I didn't even think about it. Uh, and uh, that that's my story. I, I just grew up thinking my parents are my parents, and that's it. They love me. They care for me, and uh, they nurtured me and taught me uh, just as any parent would. Mm. Do you think it's different for girls who are adopted than boys, that boys are more accepting than girls when they discover uh, or know that they have been adopted? Have you found that to be the case? It might be. I, I don't know that I could say I have enough polling experience to say for certain. Uh, I know uh, my adopted daughters, I think, are listening to us right now online, and uh, I, I think they're doing pretty well. Uh, I love them, and I know that, that it could be the case, just with uh, an emotional makeup at times, that uh, that, that can be a struggle. Um, but it... Uh, it might be uh, a case-by-case basis. Now, one of the things you write about is a misconception that orphan care sucks the life out of a church. Now, that was that was news to me, and it was distressing news to me. How common is that that notion, and how do we combat it if it's widespread? This notion comes from my perspective as a pastor, having uh, sort of a, an eye on what is out there in terms of pastoral ministry and what influences pastors and ministry perspectives. And if, if pastors are honest, they look at ministry opportunities in light of supply and demand. They look at ministry opportunities in light of start date and stop date. They look at ministry opportunities in light of how they can celebrate X program or opportunity and hopefully attract folks and move on from that. And adoption, foster care, these relational heavy kinds of ministries tend to have a, a, a stench about them at times because they don't figure into that matrix easily. They don't have a convenient start and stop date. The celebrations are fewer and further between. They take a lot of energy from the church They often take financial resources, and they don't necessarily, on the surface, prompt the church to do something that could be attractive to just the general public in bringing them in. 
It's not uh, sort of glowing all the time. For instance, if a group of families begin to foster or adopt, they bring those children into the church, and sometimes those children are really struggling. They struggle emotionally with trauma, and those children can act out in ways that might offend some guest. They may seem odd or strange. Some of those children have difficulties being around other kids. And the last thing uh, a pastor wants is disruption in the children's department or the youth ministry. Now, many pastors will hesitate, uh, Georgine, to say, oh, this would suck the life out of the church. But if you look at the matrix that they use to do ministry, the kinds of needs that foster care and adoption, orphan care generally require, they are just not attractive to that matrix. Mm. That's such an interesting uh, perspective. And I think it's possible that it's even unconscious. And I appreciate that your book, um, Until Every Child is Home, focuses on the benefits of making this a part of church culture that we not only um, bestow on those who have been adopted or in foster care, but the church derives from that kind of ministry as well. Oh, you, you've hit it, Georgina. This is exactly why I wrote the book, because I began to see that in my local church, there was such a blessing from my wife and I adopting our daughters. They are a great blessing. They're a blessing to our church But I have seen other pastors and church leaders who actually are in this kind of ministry talk about how good it is for their church. Yes, it's hard. Yes, there are relational challenges. But this kind of work provides the local church with a number of benefits, internally and externally. Internally, it can provide various kinds of giftings, outlets for those giftings. Folks in a church who have the gifting of generosity can come alongside families and help financially. Gifting of of hospitality, families can come along and help with meals with that family who's fostering or adopting. Those giftings in a local church of presence and time, people are just social and like to be around other people. Those, Georgina, are really the key, and this is where the church comes in and has such an opportunity to, to make a difference in kids' lives. If a family fosters or adopts kids, what they need is the ministry of presence more than anything. They need believers around them so that these kids, when they come into this family, they can see adults loving one another in natural, even sacrificial ways, ways that demonstrate the truth of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, the power of the Spirit, hanging out together, connecting, not just reading Scripture and praying, though that's very important, but being around one another and connecting. And with that relational environment, these kids feel safer. And we've seen that in in our church in multiple generations come alongside. And then this kind of ministry benefits the church externally in what is sometimes called cultural apologetics, because we deal with racial issues. We deal with this in a way that shows that race is a secondary issue to the gospel. We have a family in Christ, and we love one another regardless of race, and we care for one another in this way. And this is demonstrated visibly through the church. Um, The majority of, of children in care, when we think about proportional uh, racial uh, demographics, 
uh, more African-American children than, than other uh, races. And so many churches who step into this space have an opportunity to demonstrate the way the gospel provides racial unity. We also uh, have a great opportunity to prevent human trafficking. And I write about that in the book, and, and your readers uh, will, will, I think, uh, your, your, your uh, audience, as they read the book, will uh, be shocked, I think, at what they yes. see at times, but hopefully be encouraged to step into this space and, and really do some good work. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. I do want to touch on that uh, before our conversation ends later this hour, uh, but we'll uh, continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about an important book, Until Every Child is Home, Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. My guest is Dr. Todd Chipman, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 48 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Todd Chipman. His book is titled Until Every Child is Home, Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. And once again, I appreciate the emphasis is, is on the benefits that the church derives from engaging in orphan ministry and to those who are in foster care. There are several points that you make that I want to make sure we touch on in the course of our conversation. One of them is how caring for orphans is a hallmark of the life uh, of life in Jesus. Help us to make that connection, because once you make that connection, this is kind of a no-brainer. Yes. When I think about life in Jesus, I think about receiving God's blessings and being adopted into his family. When we think about the passages of the New Testament that unpack the Christian message, we think of passages like Ephesians chapter 1, where we have a presentation of the Trinity and God's blessing on the church and individuals in the church and welcoming us into his family. One of the most beloved passages in the New Testament is Romans 8, and this metaphor of adoption is used there, and we are brought into God's family. When we think about this kind of ministry, foster care or adoption, even the songs that we sing in, in churches and uh, in, in uh, concerts, I listened to a, a praise song just this week, and this metaphor of orphan care is an orphan and you brought me in. Uh, we sing those songs, and it's just a couple of steps to processing that and thinking, hey, I could do for others what God has done for me. And that's that's the rationale for it. Yeah, yeah. Another um, point that you make is that um, uh, orphan care is tied to the Great Commission. Yes, this connection runs like this. When we receive God's blessings, we want to pass along, as I've noticed, but we want to pass along not just a caring atmosphere for children and protection that they need, relational stability, provision of food and clothing and education and those kinds of things, but we understand that when we're doing this work, we are concerned not just about the child's life now, though we certainly are, we are also concerned about this child and eternity. We understand that these children are made in God's image, but even if we give them great care, great education, try to provide their relational needs, if they do not hear and receive the gospel message of Jesus Christ, their eternity is going to be much worse than they would face on earth. And so we want to think about the gospel and sharing the gospel with them, but also the fact that when we do this, when we take children into our homes and we partner together as believers in churches to do this, we show the world that we are serious about what we believe and proclaim. We are putting our feet 
to the task. And it provides opportunities for us to share about the gospel in authentic ways because of what we're doing. So the Great Commission theme has two steps. First, what we do with these children and sharing the gospel with them. But second, in doing that, we have a platform to share with those outside who see us doing this. Yeah. You acknowledge that um, there are those who are called to adoption. They have a sense of that this is what God would have them do. But there's also a role in orphan care for those who don't feel called to formally foster or adopt. But there's a role for the church to play around those families and around those children. Uh, Can you describe that for us? Yes, Georgina, and this is key. And what I have found in my involvement with Christian Alliance for Orphans and other groups, that this aspect of local church ministry, where there is a strong support network, this characterizes churches who do this kind of ministry well and who will continue to do it from one year to another in a, in a long-haul perspective. So when a family chooses to foster or adopt, responding to God's call on their lives, they need a number of support systems around them. And one of those I've mentioned already is finances. They may need some financial help Mm -hmm. in the process of getting their home ready or paying legal fees. Uh, And there's a a spectrum of, of financial requirements. Your listeners uh, may hear that, boy, it costs $50,000 or $20,000 and adoption so expensive, I couldn't do it. But for many children in the foster care system whose parental rights have been severed, it doesn't cost very much at all. And uh, so your, your listeners would want to investigate that as well. So those who have financial resources might be able to step up and provide support. But more than anything, it's that relational time together, even just hanging out or in formal ways. I think churches who rally around a family that's fostering or adopting and rally around by providing a schedule so that this family comes over and hangs out on Monday night, this family comes over on Thursday night, over the noon hour, this mom or dad comes over to hang out with the family while they have lunch. Just scheduled time of connection and putting the relational grid for these children to see will help so, so much. See, that that would has not cur- occurred, rather, to most of us. This is such a helpful and useful information, how to come alongside those uh, who are called to adopt or foster. Now, you made reference to this earlier, but can you explain the connection that you've discovered between foster care, the system, and sex trafficking, the epidemic? Yes, Georgina, this is uh, just a sad situation. And yes. I think most authors... When they write a book, they they have an idea of what they're going to say. They have an outline. They have a book contract, and a publisher has worked with them. But along the way, if if our authors who are listening are honest, uh, you learn as you write. You you learn as you go. And for me, what I learned from the process of writing this book is that the foster care system is a pipeline for human traffickers. The scenario runs something like this. Children are raised in an environment where drugs and crime are rampant. Because of that, the children are abused, they are neglected, and so Child Protective Services or Department of Children and Families steps in and removes the children. They're placed with an extended family member called a kinship placement. Many times, those kinship placements are characterized by these same lifestyle factors, drugs, crime, abuse. 
And along the way, in these two situations, the home of origin and the kinship placement, children learn early in life that crime and drugs are power and safety. This is crucial for your mm-hmm. listeners to understand. So the Department of Children and Families steps into that kinship placement, pulls children, puts them into a foster care placement. This is really the fork in the road for so many children, especially girls. They're in that foster placement. These children come with a, a grid of life that says crime and drugs are safety. And they have a very difficult time attaching to this foster family, even if it's a good family. It's, it's sometimes difficult. But it's here where if Christians would be that third family, if we would overwhelm the system so that we could be like that third family or maybe the second family, and we have a relational matrix around these children where they see adults loving one another, caring for one another, not in sexually promiscuous ways, in genuine ways, not with crime and drugs and selfishness, they, over time, will begin to feel safe. Now, it's not easy. It's difficult. But we have so much power in the family of God with the Holy Spirit working through us and these relationships. Well, sadly, many of these children don't get put in Christian homes. And so when they're vulnerable and their life is characterized by safety through crime and drugs, they run. They run when they don't get their way, and they run to the street. And on the street, they find pimps. They find uh, these these men who have a, a business model. And many of these men, Georgina, it's just so sad to say this, they have a, a business model where the COO is a woman. Hmm. Uh, the CEO is a man, and the COO is a woman. I talked to multiple experts on this, and they back up the scenario. News reports, the FBI reports back up the same scenario. They have a woman who coaches these girls along, brings them uh, a new identity, gives them clothing, takes them shopping, gives them a cell phone, gives them what they would want, and begins to give them drugs. It's here where these kids are on the run, they're vulnerable, and pimps use drugs to get girls addicted. And once they're addicted, they own those kids. They can use them as they would want to. And uh, uh, one of the folks I interviewed, a sexual assault nurse examiner at a children's hospital, said that meth is the drug of choice for pimps. They can get it. They can get kids hooked. And once the kids are hooked, they can get them to do what they would want to do. Mm. What you've just described is a tragedy, but it also is an opportunity um, for the church, as you write about it in your book, Until Every Child is Home. What are some practical first steps for people who feel that they may be called to orphan care ministry? I think the first step is to pray and talk with your spouse. Uh, get the conversation going. Often it's it's one spouse who says, I really feel called to this, and sometimes the other spouse uh, is uh, looking at their spouse saying, excuse me, what what are we doing here? And so pray together, seek the Lord together, uh, grab my book, grab Russell Moore's book, Adopted for Life. Um, look at, at websites like the Christian Alliance for Orphans and get some information. Step two, then, after that private family conversation research is to talk with your pastor. Go to him or her and talk about this. Now, I don't want to describe all pastors as having this grid that mm-hmm. they think, oh, foster care would suck the life out of church. They may think that, honestly, at a global perspective, but an individual family coming to them may soften them and may encourage them. In fact, I write in the book uh, five relationships 
to cultivate as you foster or adopt. And one of those is with your, your local pastor, even if he's not fully on board, just having him pray for you, having him in the loop will help. And talking to other leaders and, and friends at church and just making your interests known, asking them to pray for you, and then get uh, in contact with the local licensing agency. If you're concerned about foster care, there's a process that, uh, that your listeners would need to go to, and those foster classes uh, have a small fee, require about nine weeks for most states, nine consecutive weeks, but it's very helpful. And Boy, the state, um, though there are so many challenges and there are problems with this uh, aspect of government, nonetheless, the folks who do this work are, are doing their best. I am convinced mm-hmm. they're doing their very best. And uh, with the resources they have, and we can learn from them, begin those classes, and then begin looking at websites where kids are available and what, what might be available there. I think talking with extended family is a good practice at this stage as well. And obviously, with uh, if you have children in your home, you'd want to talk with them about this. For my wife and I, we went through this very process. Uh, when we first sensed a burden for this, and because I'm the pastor, I went to other church leaders. And I still remember the Sunday that we walked around to various church leaders. Hey, I want you to know we are thinking of starting foster classes this week. Will you pray for us? Think about this. They knew I was adopted. Uh, It wasn't a surprise to them that I would think this way, but I wanted to go to them first and then went through this process and getting some help along the way. And the resources like my book and others can be helpful. Well, absolutely um, helpful. I so appreciate the perspective that you bring. And to give those of us who are not called to adopt um, ways to come alongside those who do and to take full advantage of the opportunity that I think God gives us to love on these children who so desperately need us. Once again, the title of the book is Until Every Child is Home, Why the Church um, Can and Must Care for Orphans. It's a, a, a tremendous resource. And I thank you so much for talking with us about it here today. My pleasure, Georgine. God bless you. God bless you as well. Again, Dr. Todd Chipman, author of the book. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back eight minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Sometimes it's really good that this is radio and there are no visuals. <laughs> I'm sitting down at the desk. Preparing for the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, which is about to commence. And I look over, I notice the door is open. So I stand up to walk over to the door to close it so that you don't hear noise in the hallway. Not that there's anybody here at this time of night on a Thursday before a holiday weekend. Um, but then my the cord for my headphones is too short. And of course, my neck is jerked back and I take that off. And then I kick the little stand and try to push the door close. And it doesn't. I mean, it's just a comedy of errors. All of this while while. Uh, Wednesday. Did I say? Yeah, I do know it's Wednesday. (laughs) Anyway, all of that while trying to maintain a professional exterior, which of course can't be seen, which is in everyone's best interest. All right. Uh, We're going to wind our way through some additional news stories, but I think it's important that I tell you before we start that portions of today's program, you should know this, is brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. I feel better. Well, the Department of Homeland Security has barred Democratic staffers from the House Oversight Committee from visiting Customs and Border Protection 
uh, facilities at the U.S.-Mexico border as part of a planned trip this week after the committee staffers allegedly were disruptive and refused to follow instructions during their last trip. They're no longer welcome. Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings had sent his staff to visit border facilities for oversight inspections last week and planned to send staff again uh, to view immigration and customs enforcement um, at the centers. But sources uh, say that the... um, DHS has revoked access to the facilities for the upcoming visit, citing staff behavior that interfered with law enforcement operations, including refusing to leave one site after their scheduled window, uh, skipping some tours and being rude to officers. A DHS official said that ICE uh, visits will still be allowed this week, but with a two-hour time limit, one of those visits took place on Tuesday. Well, due to the operational burden placed on the field by their refusal to comply with instruction during that last week's um, a staff delegation visit. CBP uh, pulled the trip in uh, which more site visits were to take place um, at the facilities, both CBP and ICE facilities this week. That's according to a senior DHS official in an email Wednesday. Now, you know that is going to uh, stoke the furor, the ire of uh, members of the House committee. Uh, But staffers misbehaved, and so they're no longer welcome until they're willing to comply with the standards required to conduct these kinds of tours, apparently. Well, the head of the college board said Tuesday that the company is dropping the so-called adversity score as a supplement to the SAT college admissions test. After heavy pushback from critics, growing scrutiny of the role wealth plays in college admissions, the New York City-based college board introduced its environmental context dashboard about two years ago to provide context for a student's performance on the test and help students identify those who have done more with less. Well, the version used by more than 50 institutions in a pilot program involved a formula that combined school and neighborhood factors, such as advanced course offerings, uh, the crime rate to produce a single number. Well, critics called it an overreach for the College Board to score adversity the way they did in academics. College Board CEO David Coleman, he agreed, saying in a statement on Tuesday that the idea of a single score was wrong. It was confusing and created the misconception that the indicators are specific to an individual student. Well, the nonprofit announced several changes to the tool on Tuesday, including the decision to give student access to the information about their schools and neighborhood starting in 2020 in this upcoming school year, 2020-2021. Renamed Landscape, uh, the revised tool, it's expected to provide data points from government sources and the College Board that are seen as affecting education, including whether the student's school is rural suburban or urban, the size of the school's senior class, the percentage of students eligible for free and reduced price lunch, and participation and performance in college-level advanced placement courses at the school. We listened to thoughtful criticism, Coleman said, and made landscape better and more transparent. Landscape provides admission officers more consistent background information so they can fairly consider every student no matter where they live and learn. Well, admissions officers also would have access to a range of test scores at the school to show where the applicants fell, as well as information like the median family income, education levels, crime rates in the student's neighborhood, and so on. The tool's uh, creation was an acknowledgement of persistent criticism of the use of this admissions test in an era of concern with unequal access to advanced coursework and high-priced tutors that further advantage those with means to access them. Between 100 and 150 institutions are expected to pilot the new tool this year before it would become broadly available next year. So we'll see if that's a better tool than 
uh, the one that they originally trotted out. A federal court in San Francisco has issued a mixed ruling by dismissing some of Planned Parenthood's claims in the multi-million dollar civil lawsuit against citizen journalist uh, Sandra Merritt. The court sided with Planned Parenthood's claim regarding alleged trespass at a Texas abortion facility. Planned Parenthood's remaining claims will proceed to trial. The trial is scheduled to begin the 30th of September in San Francisco and is expected to last between four and six weeks. And a 137-page ruling on the party's uh, motions for summary judgment, the judge, William Oreck, concluded that Planned Parenthood lacks sufficient evidence to take several of its 15 counts against merit to trial. These include the abortion organization's claim for breach of contract, some of its claims for trespass and its claims for illegal recording in Florida. Well, significantly, the court also ruled that the First Amendment bars Planned Parenthood's claims for damages alleged to arise from the publication of the undercover videos or the reaction of the public to those videos. This essentially guts Planned Parenthood's case as the bulk of its made-up damages are alleged to arise from the publication of the videos and from the public's reaction to them. And although it dismissed several of Planned Parenthood's trespass claims against Merritt as to two trespass claims arising out of the undercover investigations at Planned Parenthood facilities in Houston and Denver, the court concluded that Merritt and others are liable for trespassing as a matter of law, leaving for the jury the question of whether the alleged trespass caused any recoverable damages. Well, the ruling is seriously flawed because, as a matter of law, Merritt and other investigators could not be liable for trespass since they were invited onto the various properties by Planned Parenthood. Merritt will appeal this unjust ruling if any damages are awarded at trial. Well, the court denied the motions for summary judgment filed by Merritt and other defendants as to several of Planned Parenthood's other claims, including claims brought under the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Law, or RICO, that the abortion organization used as a weapon to stop the undercover videos produced by the Center for Medical Progress that exposed Planned Parenthood's gruesome trade in baby body parts. The court concluded that these claims will have to be decided by a jury at the upcoming trial. And it's in- incredible to me that what they discovered, the illegal activity, the profane activity of Planned Parenthood, is not the issue that the court's going to be looking at, is whether or not uh, they should have been outed by these undercover um, journalists. This just is evidence of the upside down, twisted way things are working at this point. Well, Liberty Council represents Merritt, has presented evidence that Planned Parenthood has no standing, no damages and no legal basis for the suit. The founder and chairman of Liberty Council, Matt Staver, said that Planned Parenthood's lawsuit is nothing but an attempt to bully and silence the truth about its grisly abortion practice, which nobody seems all that Uh, interested in. The Supreme Court has ruled that RICO cannot be used to silence free speech, and that is precisely what Planned Parenthood is seeking to accomplish. Planned Parenthood will not succeed, whether or not at this court level or at a higher court level. Liberty Council is a nonprofit litigation, education, and policy organization, as you know, representing um, merit in this case, and we will certainly continue to follow this this case as it moves forward. And sadly, again, the merits of what was exposed in those videos— is not a matter that the court will be considering at this time. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Did I mention that Chris Williams is engineering this afternoon? Yeah, Clark Hilton is uh, sunning himself on a Hawaiian beach somewhere. I'm sure he's just uh, lamenting the fact that he's not engineering the show. That you know, it's a great place to be. He's enjoying his family and all the sunshine, the ocean, the blue skies, and 
uh, Blue Water. But, um, you know, missing engineering the show, I'm sure, has just been a great, a grave disappointment to him. Hopefully he'll be able to get over that fairly quickly. Well, Queen Elizabeth II has formally approved Boris Johnson's request to temporarily suspend Parliament, and panic has ensued. It's a move that will largely prevent lawmakers from pushing through new legislation and ultimately sabotaging the prospect of no deal Brexit. Well, in a letter to lawmakers that was released today, the prime minister said he spoke to Her Majesty the Queen to request an end to the current parliamentary session. He said an integral feature to the legislative process um, will be the introduction of a bill to leave the European Union and to secure its passage before the 31st of October. Hours later, the Queen approved that request, suspending Parliament from from mid-September to the 14th of October. Well, earlier in the day, he confirmed reports that he would hold the Queen's speech normally a formality that outlines the legislative agenda on October the 14th. Uh, Since Parliament is normally suspended before the speech, the decision means opposition lawmakers would be unlikely to have enough time to pass laws blocking the UK's exit from the EU on the 31st of October without a negotiated deal. Well, as always, uh, my door is open, Johnson told lawmakers, open to all colleagues should you wish to discuss this or any other matter. Well, Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, the official leader of the opposition, says he's appalled at the recklessness of Johnson's government, which talks about sovereignty and yet is seeking to suspend Parliament to avoid scrutiny of its plans for its reckless no-deal Brexit. This is an outrage and a threat to our democracy. So apparently democracy is being threatened in other places as well. That is why Labour has been working across Parliament to hold this reckless government to account and prevent a disastrous no-deal which Parliament has already ruled out, Corbyn continued. If Johnson has confidence in his plans, uh, he should put them to the people in a general election or public vote. Well, Liberal Democratic leader Joe Swinson said the move is a dangerous and unacceptable course of action. That would be an act of cowardice from Boris Johnson. Well, another, the Speaker of the House of Commons called it a constitutional outrage. He needs to consult um, Americans. I think constitutional crisis is probably a you know preferred term and said he wasn't told in advance of Johnson's decision, according to Sky News. Well, shutting down Parliament would be an offense against the democratic process and the rights of parliamentarians as the people's elected representatives. And it may well be. I'm just quoting. Surely at this early stage of his uh, premier premiership, I think it's premier. Anyway, the prime minister should be seeking to establish rather than undermine his democratic credentials and indeed his commitment to parliamentary democracy. Well, Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit party, said the move would make a no confidence motion in Johnson certain, adding that a general election is more likely and is seen as a positive move by Brexiteers. Uh, President Trump, he tweeted, it would be very hard for Jeremy Corbyn and the leader of uh, Britain's Labour Party to seek a no-confidence vote against the new prime minister, especially in light of the fact that Boris is exactly what the UK has been looking for and will prove to be a great one. Love, UK. So the president weighing in on the internal um, spat in uh, the UK. The pound fell about 1.2203. I don't even know how to say that. It fell um, to 1.2203, I don't know, on Wednesday. It's a bad thing, I'm sure. Um, It uh, fell from uh, about where it was the day before at 1.2300 the day before. Uh, A sign that investors are alarmed by the prospect of Britain falling out of the EU on the 31st without a divorce deal. A no-deal Brexit uh, would see the return of um, border checks, tariffs on trade between Britain and the rest of the EU, its larger trading partner. 
Uh, Johnson became the prime minister late last month following the resignation of Theresa May, has set his primary task as delivering Brexit. In his first speech, he said the, the British people have made enough, uh, have had enough of waiting and the time has come to act to give strong leadership. My job is to serve you, the people. He promised to tackle social problems, improve education, saying he will take personal responsibility, adding the buck stops here, or rather the pound stops here. Johnson said that although he wanted to have a deal, he would prepare for a potential no-deal fallout, not because uh, we want that outcome, but because it is the only common sense to a way to prepare. Yes, there will be difficulties, but if there is one thing that has really sapped the confidence of business, it is not the decision we have taken. It is our refusal to take decisions. So he is moving forward, apparently, with the approval of the queen. Senator Bernie Sanders has claimed that China has done more to help its people escape uh, extreme poverty than any other country, including his own. What we have to say about China in fairness to China and its leadership is, if I'm not mistaken, they have made more progress in addressing extreme poverty than any country in the history of civilization. Now, at what cost, one might add, and let's take a look historically at how they've achieved this goal, not what they've done necessarily for their people, but what they've done to their people. He acknowledged that the country was moving in a more authoritarian direction, an apparent reference to Beijing's response to pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, a concession Uh, Thankfully, Sanders was willing to make his comments are the latest compliments. The self-described democratic socialist has paid to communist regimes following praise of Cuba and the former Soviet Union. According to the World Bank, nearly 800 million people in China have escaped poverty since the 80s. Soon after China's rulers enacted economic reforms meant to open the country to form an foreign investment and introduce a degree of competition to domestic uh, industries. And around that time, China tried to encourage economic growth to by implementing a one child policy a restriction the United States Department, uh, the U.S. State Department, rather, said fed a regulatory scheme that was tantamount to coercion that leads to abortion. So as long as we can reduce the number of our citizens through forced abortion, then perhaps we can economically rise. Some would say that's a price too heavy to pay. But according to data obtained from China's own health ministry in 2013, doctors had performed more than 330 million abortions and 196 million sterilizations since 1971. When China started population control efforts, the nation didn't formally implement the one-child policy until 1979 and implemented it with a fury. The one-child policy is one of many Chinese policies criticized by the United States. In a 2018 report, the State Department cited issues such as government torture, political prisoners, forced disappearances by the government, and severe restrictions on labor rights. Media outlets have focused primarily on um, the Uyghurs, a largely Muslim ethnic minority, which has been subject to internment and re-education classes. But, you know, the economy's good and maybe the trains run on time. The Chinese government has also caught attention for its social credit system that scores citizens has resulted in millions being denied access to certain methods of travel. China has similarly restricted freedom of movement through its uh, a hukou uh, system, which the State Department has argued results in abuse of migrants from rural to urban areas. Uh, individuals from a rural area who migrate for work to an urban area usually can't register and live there legally. Unregistered urban residents are therefore vulnerable to abuse of employers who can use threats of arrest as a form of coercion. That's from a 2013 report. The department's 2018 report says that the system had improved but maintained that it was particularly difficult for rural residents. And of course, there's a history behind all of this as well. Uh, but again, they um, have lifted uh, the, a segment of the population from poverty, we just want to look away 
uh, when asked the details of how they achieved that. I mentioned it at the top of the program, but uh, entities in Japan have surpassed entities in mainland China as the top foreign holders of U.S. Treasury securities. That's according to the latest estimate published uh, this month by the Treasury Department. Uh, In May of this year, the Chinese um, uh, owned uh, significant uh, amount in U.S. Treasuries that has since been uh, surpassed in June by the Japanese. Uh, that marked the first time since uh, May of 2017 that entities in Japan have owned more U.S. Treasury securities, as estimated by the Treasury Department, uh, than uh, entities in China, an ally as opposed to uh, an enemy. Well, every b- child born today here in the United States, speaking of economics, um, inherits a portion of our national debt. And uh, we're living at our children's expense. There is a moral dimension to our national debt. Michael Tanner, writing for National Review, points out, Oh, Lord, give us, give me chastity, quoting St. Augustine, is reputed to have said, but don't give it yet. Oh, Lord, give me chastity, but don't give it yet. So it is with Republicans who have vowed to show some fiscal discipline sometime during President Trump's second term. Uh, But while we're waiting, the Congressional Budget Office has announced that this year's budget deficit will top $960 billion, $63 billion more than predicted in May of this year. And next year's deficit will almost certainly exceed that. After that, the era of trillion-dollar deficits is here to stay. By 2029, CBO reports, our $22 trillion national debt will top $34 trillion. President Trump may accomplish the truly Herculean feat of becoming a bigger deficit spender than President Obama, and he'll do it without a catastrophic recession to deal with. How did we get here? Well, contrary to conventional wisdom, it wasn't the Republican tax cut. In fact, when compared to 2018, tax revenues went up 3% in the first nine months of fiscal year 2019. Would they be even higher in the absence of those cuts? Well, maybe. But the real problem, as usual, is out-of-control spending. I know it's a... Um, is a phrase I keep using over and over again because I am concerned about future generations. The CBO estimates that uh, federal outlay in 2019 will total $4.4 trillion. That's a $300 billion increase in nominal spending since 2018. Discretionary spending is up. Defense spending is up. Entitlement spending is up. There's no effort to prioritize or make the difficult choices of governing. There is only more and more. And while... Um, Congress controls the the purse strings. It's also true that President Trump has shown exactly zero interest in restraining spending. The only time he speaks out on budget matters is to demand more money for his latest project. As bad as this is, we can hardly look to the Democrats for relief. Their spending plans would make, well, Caligula look like a Scrooge McDuck. Consider that with the release of his $16.3 trillion green energy plan, Bernie Sanders has now promised more than $58 trillion in additional spending over the next 10 years. But Bernie has, is an avowed socialist, so we should expect um, as much. Uh, what then about Elizabeth Warren, who has a plan for, for that as well, proposing an estimated $40 trillion in new spending over the next decade? Or Kamala Harris, or Kamala Harris, who would spend an additional $43 trillion over 10 years, and Pete Buttigieg wants to spend an additional $6.9 trillion. Even supposed um, moderate Joe Biden has called for around $2.97 trillion in spending so far. Worse, the Iowa caucus are still six weeks away. The giant pander fest that um, is the uh, prime Primary is just getting started. The race is on to see which candidate can be the first to promise more than $100 trillion in spending the government can't afford. One wonders how all those people complaining about their student debt would react if they understood that their theoretic share of the national debt was about $67,000. 
Uh, The growing debt doesn't come without consequence. There are, of course, economic repercussions. Over time, debt can slow growth, reduce wages, hinder our flexibility in responding to economic slowdowns, not to mention other concerns that might arise. More important, there's a moral dimension as well. Every child born today inherits a portion of that debt. We're living on our children's or at their expense. You can't uh, get much more taxation without representation than that. If only someone in Washington actually cared. Apparently, that's not the case just yet. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Oregonians are going to get a record $1.6 billion tax refund kicker, according to the state economist. $1.6 billion will go back to taxpayers in 2020. It's official. Oregonians will see the largest ever kicker tax refund next year. Um, tax receipts for the just-ended biennium counted. State economists say more than $1.57 billion will flow back to personal income taxpayers in 2020 when they file their 2019 taxes. That compares to a ticker, uh, kicker refund rather of a little more than $1.4 billion projected in May when officials last forecast overall revenues. The final tally delivered to lawmakers in a hearing on Wednesday morning continued a consistent trend over the last two years. And state tax revenues consistently outpaced economists' expectations. In 2019, or rather 2017, through the end of this year, fiscal year, tax receipts came in 9% above projections, meaning the largest refund by dollar amount as a percentage of the tax liability. It's going to be the third largest kicker in Oregon history. So there you have it. Reading the Jerusalem Post earlier today, I was struck by a headline, The Fighting Dramatically Escalates as Both Sides Prepare for the Final War Between Israel and Iran. You have to admit, that's a very compelling headline. Well, they're writing... Um, Are we about to see World War III erupt in the Middle East? Over the past several days, Israel has attempted to prevent attacks by Iranian forces and their allies by striking targets in Syria, Gaza, Lebanon and Iraq. As you will see below, you're not seeing it, but it was below, political leaders in both Lebanon and Iraq are now accusing Israel of a declaration of war. And Hezbollah is pledging to strike Israel back extremely hard. Of course, if a full-blown war erupts between Israel and one of her neighbors, it is likely to become the multi-front war almost immediately. But at the core, this is a conflict between Israel and Iran. The Iranians have repeatedly pledged to wipe the nation of Israel off the face of the planet and... The coming final war is going to literally be a matter of life or death for those two nations. Both sides have been preparing for this final war for a very long time. And once it fully erupts, the death and destruction that we will witness will be off the charts. Now, most of us aren't reading much about um, most recent events that they uh, suggest are taking place, but... Um, the the uh, post continues just within a, the fast, uh, past few days, the fighting has escalated dramatically as the Israelis have conducted operations in four different territories. Uh, Israeli forces openly claimed attacks over the weekend in Syria and the Palestinian administered Gaza Strip and were blamed for two more operations in Lebanon and Iraq. As reports of what occurred across the region emerged, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, is in a bit, who is in a bit of trouble, hinted at his country's ongoing efforts abroad, telling a Monday planning meeting that we will deepen our roots and strike at our enemies. The attacks in Syria, Lebanon and Iraq specifically targeted Iranian forces and their allies, and the goal was to prevent imminent attack against Israel. In Syria, Israeli warplanes killed two members of the Lebanese Hezbollah. Israel says the individuals were supporting an Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps plot to launch explosive-laden drones into Israel. 
The Israelis say that the specific Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps unit responsible was the Quds Force, led by an individual whose name I will not attempt to pronounce. If true, the Quds Force was likely using Hezbollah as the deniable proxy to avoid direct links between the plot and Tehran. In another operation in Lebanon, Israel targeted another Iranian-allied group, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. In Iraq, senior Iran-aligned figures accused Israel of another airstrike. Missiles are not flying directly back and forth between Israel and Iran yet, but at this point, a state of war essentially exists, and many are deeply concerned about what is going to happen next. In particular, it looks like Hezbollah could launch a large-scale attack against Israel at any moment because their leadership is absolutely furious that the Israelis just hit their headquarters building in Beirut. Hezbollah's secretary general threatened to attack Israel in retaliation for a drone attack over the weekend on the organization's headquarters. Tensions between the two countries, between Israel and Hezbollah, rather, are now at their highest point since the 2006 war. And the Lebanese government itself is extremely angry as well. In fact, the president of Lebanon has publicly stated that what Israel has just done is essentially the equivalence of a declaration of war. The president Uh, There met Monday with the U.N. special coordinator for Lebanon, calling Israel's moves in Beirut um, a declaration of war. The statement echoed the words of Iraq's powerful Fatah alliance, which called separate strikes that killed a militia commander in the border town of uh, um, Al-Qam, a declaration of war on Iraq and its people, according to the association. This is an extremely serious situation. Again, the Jerusalem Post goes on to write. Israel is literally on the brink of war with Hezbollah, and many feel that such a war is inevitable. Meanwhile, a very powerful bloc in the Iraqi government has also accused Israel of a declaration of war. And I won't go over all of the details, um, uh, but uh, skipping a few paragraphs, they conclude this can definitely be described as a time of wars and rumors of wars. And the situation on the ground is extremely fluid right now. The fact that the Israelis have another national election coming up adds another layer of complexity to all of this. And that election may cause events to accelerate even faster than many were anticipating. Let us pray for peace because right now tensions are extremely high and things are beginning to spiral out of control. And when a full-blown war does break out, it is highly likely that the U.S. will get involved and that uh, will have enormous implications for all of us. Interesting post on the Jerusalem post from earlier today. How much time do we have left in this segment? About a, about two minutes. Well, I won't start on this, but Wallace Henley, writing for um, Christian Post, asked the question and uh, it attempts to answer it from a biblical perspective. Where is America in the cycle of nations? I'm going to try to get to that tomorrow because it's a, a fascinating analysis of uh, the cycle of nations as found in Scripture, if you follow the pattern of Israel. And uh, we'll try to get to that um, tomorrow. Um, yeah, in fact, I'm not going to start another thing because I, I won't be able to finish it. And that will just uh, create some frustration. Um, I will say, however, that uh, coming up, we're going to talk about a song, just a Christian song, very popular, I think from 2012. Uh, Big Daddy Weave and his band, they're, they're the performers. Uh, he and another band member are the writers of the song Redeemed. And just to, to put everything into perspective, how something very simple can change an entire life, despite the consequence of wrongdoing, it'll all become clear in just a few moments. But that's coming up in our next and final segment, Redeemed, and how that uh, that concept, when set to music, can change everything. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Tennessee man was recently dealt two sentences. The first, freedom in Christ and life in prison. It was a murder trial. It was held last Friday. Defendant Danny Holmes, he opened up with a 20-minute testimony where he confessed to killing a man three years ago. And then he recounted his spiritual transformation in prison since then. Instrumental to his confession was the song Redeemed by Christian band Big uh, Big Daddy Weave. He brought the lyrics in a notebook to the courtroom. Mike Weaver, the band's lead singer, said that he was blown away when he first learned how God used his band's music in Holmes' life and, for that matter, in so many others. Weaver, who lives north of Nashville in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, just 33 miles from the site where Mr. Holmes' crime took place in Murfreesboro, said over the last handful of years, so many stories have come from God using that song. It's uh, it's a message that is so dear to God's heart. Well, the song emphasizes redemption and Christ's work to free us from our past sins and past selves. The line that sealed the deal for Mr. Holmes, the uh, now incarcerated uh, man, came from the first verse. Then you look at this prisoner and you say to me, son, stop fighting a fight that's already been won. Well, Holmes accepted his life sentence and vowed to serve the Lord and spread the gospel while behind bars. I'm 30 years old and I've been fighting for nothing all my life. I've been fighting for gangs, Holmes said in court. I ain't never fought for anything that made sense, but I knew the Lord was telling me to fight for him this time. I just knew he was stirring on my spirit, end quote. Well, Weaver, the songwriter, said he and redeemed co-writer Benji Coart, they intend to visit Holmes in prison. And again, it's just about 33 miles away from where uh, they live. Several years ago, their 2012 hit also grabbed the attention of musician Zach Williams. While on tour with a rock band in Spain, Williams heard a portion of Redeemed as the bus driver flipped through radio stations. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke to me in that moment, saying, you need to quit doing what you're doing and turn your life around. Williams said that was a turning point for me. I called my wife and told her I was coming home. He canceled all his scheduled tour dates. He abandoned the destructive habits that had hijacked his life on the road and reconciled with his wife. In 2016, after his own spiritual turnaround, Williams co-wrote Chainbreaker, which topped the charts and won a Grammy last year. Redeemed has spurred listeners to share dramatic stories of freedom from the adult entertainment industry, substance abuse, and much more. One fan told Weaver that the song helped her favor her forgive rather the man who abducted her and held her captive. Uh, Weaver says from the moment we started singing it, the stories started coming um, forward. After 54 weeks on Billboard's Hot Christian Song List in 2012, it's become one of the band's most requested songs. The Christian rocker said he wrote the song to work through with his own struggles with self-hatred. I told Jesus everything I hated about myself, and he told me that's not the way he feels about me. After that moment, the chorus of Redeem came together in Weaver's head. I am redeemed. You set me free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains and wipe away every stain. Now I'm not who I used to be. He and Coward hammered out the rest of the song together. For Weaver, the song represented some closure in his battle with himself. But Coward, then a worship leader at a church in Buffalo, New York, introduced the song to his congregation. No matter how many stories Weaver hears of the impact of the song, Redeemed, he never stops marveling. We have nothing to do with the stories we hear. Only Jesus can use a song in that way. Holmes said in a statement that um, he hopes to urge young people that he meets in prison to look to Jesus for salvation, not money or extravagance, as he used to. From the stand, uh, he uh, said he was uh, praying for the victim's families, understanding he was responsible for their loss. He also made a pledge to his mother. 
Mama, you know, I love you, but Mama, I promise you, your baby boy, he's going to serve the Lord forever. I hope you'll find this encouraging. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.